You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. uses cutting-edge technology to deliver something that all agencies can use and afford. Vigilance Face Search is an easy-to-use facial recognition solution that works, finds and applications since 2002. With a clear focus on face recognition, the company is committed to delivering the best performance available on the market. Face Express has proven to provide fast and accurate face recognition in crowded environments such as airports, cruise ships, land borders, customs and immigration entry points, and entertainment venues such as theme parks, outdoor stadiums, and indoor arenas. In January 2020, Robert Julian Borchak Williams received a phone call at his office from the Detroit Police Department. They ordered him to head down to the precinct so they could arrest him for a crime he knew he didn't commit. Williams thought this must be someone's idea of a joke. He finished up his day's work, got into his car, and headed home, where the cops were waiting for him in his driveway. Without saying why they were there, and with Williams' family watching, the officers cuffed him, put him in the back of the car, and drove to the station. One day later, Williams was in the interrogation room. Detectives presented him with printouts of still images, frames captured by a security camera from a high-end lifestyle store in Detroit. The pictures were fuzzy, a black man wearing a baseball cap, and not much more detail. The man in the photo was wanted for shoplifting, and the cops thought they had found their man. Of course, they hadn't. Instead, what they had done was make the first publicly known mistaken arrest based on a false positive from a facial recognition algorithm. It was new technology, but the same American anti-black racism. It's almost a cliché to say that algorithms are everywhere. From what you see, to what you hear, to what you watch. They are the tools by which the modern world plans, programs, and conducts itself. But they're also the tools by which the modern world perpetuates racism in the digital age. In hiring decisions, in loan applications, and in law enforcement, algorithms enable and encourage the racism that the tech world would like to believe it's helping to dismantle. Robert Williams was ultimately released, after more than 30 hours in police custody, and after officers traumatized his wife and daughter. But the question remains, if algorithms are going to rule our lives, how can we ensure they rule fairly? Hi. I'm Nicole Turner-Lee, Director of the Center for Technology Innovation and Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Welcome to the podcast series, hosted by Tech Tank, offering the latest research and insights into current and emerging tech issues. Today's podcast is focused on racial bias and technology, and I hope that you will find the conversation intriguing as we proceed. I'm glad to be joined by two Brookings scholars, Rayshawn Ray, the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies, and Tom Wheeler, former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission and a visiting fellow in governance studies. Welcome. 
this is our inaugural podcast and you know i'm going to shoot right to the to the center of this the topic that i always love to discuss which is racial bias in tech and i think it's such an interesting topic to sort of look at right now here we are in the middle of uh you know the middle of the middle of the middle of a pandemic right we're also dealing with the digital inequities that have come forth as we see that more than, you know, 50 million kids have had to stay home and social distance. Look at us at Brookings. We're working remotely and even doing these podcasts from our living rooms and basements. But yet, even in all that opportunity, there appears to be some disparities that exist. So I want to jump right into this because I think we've got a good period of time, a chunk of time to unpack it for our listeners, but also maybe get us some solutions. Piers, that we keep talking about this over and over and over again. So, Rachel, I want to start with you. You're a sociologist. <laughs> when, I, when I grew up, my mother asked me when I uh, got my degree and it said sociology, she said, daughter, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I now can tell her I can work at Brookings, right? <laughs> Let's start by unpacking what we mean by race and racial bias. And particularly, you know, why don't you start in terms of how we as sociologists sort of frame that? Let's start with you, Rayshawn, and then we'll go to Tom to sort of look at some of the historical um, meanings around tech. And then we'll side up, you know, bring that all together for our listeners. Well, I think broadly, when we talk about race, Race is a socially constructed category. It is something that has been used over time to divide us as humans. And it's oftentimes been a factor that's been used by which to allocate resources. And skin tone has been one of the main ways in which we try to highlight race. And the reason why I say race is a social construction is because race is real because it's real in its consequences. The consequences of race oftentimes are linked to racism. So because people know that race is real in its consequences, people then assume that race is real in its circumstances, meaning where it comes from. And even though there's, there are a lot of people who try to highlight the ways that people are different genetically, people are 99.9% genetically similar. But our experiences based on our phenotype, based on our region, based on our social class, are oftentimes the things that manifest in ways that we attribute to racial classification. Racism, oftentimes the way people interpret racism is on an interpersonal level. That is simply face to face. It's very, very difficult for people to process that racism in the primary way that it operates is systemically is through our social institutions, is structurally, structural racism, the way that it permeates, say, the criminal justice system from the time that police officers decide who they're going to stop for a traffic stop, all the way through a conviction and who ends up staying in prison longer. These are structural elements that regardless of who is in place, they are going to play out. And so part of it is helping people to realize this. Now, racial bias, of course, is something that can be implicit, it can be explicit. So explicit is the thought that these are conscious attitudes that people have. When you ask them on a survey or you ask them what they think, they give you an answer. This is a person's explicit conscious attitudes. But oftentimes what we're talking about here and what we've been talking about is implicit racial bias. Oftentimes these are the things that either people fail to acknowledge or don't oftentimes even have the capacity to not to acknowledge because they are so deeply embedded in our psyche that they manifest in ways in which we make associations between two seemingly unrelated 
objects such as a person and a weapon, and it leads to police officers being more likely to associate guns and violence with black people. So then when a black person has a cell phone or has a bottle of iced tea or some Skittles or has some other inanimate object, police officers perceive, and other people do as well, that that is a violent weapon that could hurt them because blackness oftentimes becomes weaponized. That's right. That's right. And I think what's so interesting about what you're talking about, which I try to also share with people in terms of race being socially constructed, I love your point, right? We are 99% alike. It has been sort of the construction around power and privilege, right? And in some cases, you know, where, you know, where we live, where we shop, how we talk, that have become these delineators that, you know, essentially have prioritized uh, groups, one group over another. And I, I, I really think like what you're talking about has has sort of given itself to this conversation around these microtransgressions that we often see. And I think that those are real cases. So, Tom, now you're the historian, you know, here, Rashawn and I are over here getting into our thing around the social construction of race and this, that and the other thing. But before we actually talk about racial bias, I think it's very important to lay out why we're connecting race and tech. You wrote a wonderful book around, you know, the origins of tech and innovation. And I so love are you, you to- are you going to plug the book, Nicole? It's called from Gu- <laughs> it's called from Gutenberg to Google: The History of Our Future, and it's available on Amazon. The uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> but, you know, but, but but I think the re- the reality here, listening to you two, is is there are sociological effects of technology, including their racial effects. But yeah, you know, yeah. T- technology is is a relative concept in in terms of its sociological impact you know once the technology of the industrial revolution production line uh stimulated the great migration from south to north right and and today digital technology is eliminating jobs right so 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 technology is something that is relative in its in its impact, but it has always, and to go back to the history for a second, it has always been, if not a the defining force in the human experience. So yes. one of the things I talk about in my book, for instance, is how Gutenberg and the technology that he developed in the middle of the 15th century was the original information revolution. We would not have had the Reformation. We would not have had the wide, the, the rapid spread of the Renaissance. We would not have had the scientific method had we not had this technology of putting ink on paper in a way that could be scaled, that yeah. Gutenberg brought us. And, you know, 400 years later, the, the technology of the railroad eliminated geography and distance as the defining forces in our lives. But technology is, is, is typically viewed by its output rather than its effects. You know, when I talked about Gutenberg, I talked about the effects of that being the scientific revolution or or the renaissance you know the railroad enabled the industrial revolution 
But at the same point in time, the effects of centralizing economic production in in central cities fed by by railroads had all kinds of effects it brought us public schooling it brought us public health it brought us public safety all of issues that had not existed before you had these urban areas built around production fed by the railroad and in the digital era we're seeing the same kind of things we are seeing Digital technology enabling incredible new capabilities, such as what we're doing right now. Right. But at the same point in time, actively infringing on the privacy of every person on this podcast and listening to this podcast, becoming the basis for monopoly and crushing innovative competition and and so what we what the lesson that we have learned over the years from technology is that we need to consider what are the and I'll now use your guys profession sociological consequences of the development and introduction of these new technologies and that's what we're living through right now comma again No, and I think you're so right. I mean, I want to go back to your railroad analogy. It's not uncommon, right, after the Reconstruction, when we saw African-Americans move into urban areas, that they lived on what was commonly known as the other side of the tracks, right, where uh, housing was not necessarily up to par or up to code or where schools were not necessarily paired equally with those that were on the other side of the tracks. It was so interesting when I was doing my book. I went to a small town in downstate Virginia and I was asking the person who was taking me around, where are all the black people in the city? And he said, on the other side of the tracks. And that was just last year, right? So I think that you're so right that there are effects that come with, with any type of industrialization or modernization of systems. Rashawn, when we think about these systemic results that emanate from new technology, why is it so difficult to place words like diversity and inclusivity um, into the same sentence as digital opportunity and innovation? It shouldn't be. I mean, it should honestly be as simple as you just described it. But part of it is that, particularly in the United States, but I think also in other parts around the world that are having these tech challenges, part of the problem is that over the past quarter century or so, we've really embraced this colorblind rhetoric, this colorblind ideology as if we actually have a colorblind society. And in doing so, anyone who acknowledges that racism exists, anyone who acknowledges that that racism is something that's a part of our lives, anyone who even mentions the word race supposedly is perceived as stoking racial fears, which could be farther from the truth. I mean, as we know about bias, and of course, specializing in social psychology, similar to the work that you do on tech and tech bias, that you only deal with bias when you fully acknowledge it, when you realize that it's there, you understand it, and then you can actually do something about it. So the colorblind perspective, I mean, even even as we think about responses to COVID right now, the reason why we're seeing these huge racial disparities for Blacks and Latinos is because we've taken a colorblind approach to a pandemic and a virus in a society that is far from colorblind. 
And so part of what we have to do is we have to shift away from colorblindness and actually shift on to being anti-racist, which means we approach everything we do from a racially equitable perspective to say, are there places where bias can come into play? And if so, we actually need to weed these sort of things out. Right. So I want to stay on that for just a moment. Our vignette introduced us to the African-American man in Detroit surveilled through facial recognition technology, and he landed up being wrongfully accused, sitting at the uh, station for several hours, only to find out that that wasn't him. Um, is, is that what you're talking about when you start to, you know, fo po focus on the fact that we're infusing race or racism into these models? And then I'm going to jump over to Tom to sort of see, you know, how do we balance that with the initial goals of the innovators? Yes, I think so. I mean, when we look at these these new technologies, I mean, for example, Amazon's recognition program that they ended up pulling off the market, rightfully so, because similar to other sorts of programs, I mean, they have certain biases embedded in them that misclassifies and misidentifies, particularly people of color. I mean, there are a series of studies highlighting this. I mean, Black women in particular become misclassified. Their gender gets misclassified. A lot of it has to do with hair, with skin tone. We also know that they've conducted studies with everyone from politicians to professional athletes and find that they have been misclassified as criminals, just like this man did in Detroit. And part of what we have to ensure is that any type of technology that law enforcement is using has been properly tested has had the proper randomized control trials, the same approach that we're taking to vaccines, we should use the same approach with technology because as technology advances and as law enforcement changes, one big thing I worry about is that as people are calling for, for, for reallocations of funding as it relates to defund the police and divestment from policing, that a byproduct of that, an unintended consequence is going to be the scaling up of technological approaches from law enforcement that is going to still enact the same sort of biases and racial profiling on black and brown people that we see police officers enact every single day. So, of course, I know we're going to get into thinking about algorithms and how they're constructed, but I just think on a broad level is racial profiling at its finest. And we have to ensure that technology is not just similar to what we're currently using because the current system is flawed, but it has to be better. It needs to be above reproach if police officers are actually going to use it to arrest and prosecute people. Yeah, I mean, that is a great real world example of where we have to take a very careful look and policymakers are concerned about this. I mean, in addition to companies like Amazon, IBM, Microsoft, there was just an array of, of organizations that decided not to use facial recognition. You know, one, because it's not like you're mentioning, technically sound in terms of the accuracy of people of color. But then two, you know, does it make sense? I mean, Tom, when you think about racial bias, and I know in your role as the former FCC chairman, you were very, very keen on democratizing the internet in so many ways. You know, do you have other examples where we might actually start to pay attention to these well, kinds let of me, things? Let me, Nicole, let me pick up on something yes, profound yes. that Rashawn just said. He says that so the only way to deal with bias is to acknowledge it. And the problem in the tech world is that we don't do that. So what is the mantra of digital technology? Move fast and break things, right? And, and, and what does that say? That says, go do, but don't worry about the consequences. That, that the mere fact that you can build it, that you can make zeros and ones on a computer, do all of these amazing things, 
somehow becomes more important than the impact of that and that and and that you as coders become so involved in the fact that golly I can make this happen that you forget let alone never even consider this acknowledgement that Rashawn just talked about of bias and you ignore involving others um, whether it be in the process of developing or as employees or or whatever but let's go to let's go to facial recognition for for, for a specific here since since you raised it yes yes so what is artificial intelligence it, it is it is basically looking at lots of data to make a pretty good guess and thus the question becomes what data are you looking at and how have you trained your algorithms to to do that to to pull from various various sources those are the technological issues but they are determined by human decisions humans make the selections expressed in algorithms. And that means that opens the door to what Rashawn was talking about in the, you know, the opportunity for sociological bias. And so if we're going to address this issue, we need to develop a, a, a sensibility and a sensitivity to what Rashawn just said that the only way to deal with bias is to acknowledge it. But right now, the digital economy is built around, gee, I can build it, look what it does, and and not acknowledging the consequences. You know, I completely agree with what you're talking about. I think we've come out of a stage where, you know, innovation was pretty much predicated upon permissionless innovation, right? This idea, like you said, build it, build it, build it, race to the market. And now we're seeing what I commonly call uh, permissionless uh, forgiveness. <laughs> I'm sorry that I let foreign operatives, you know, steer the election. I'm sorry that I optimized, you know, the search engine uh, query where it delivered back African-Americans as primates versus delivering back African-American faces. I'm sorry, right, that we did not realize that a healthcare algorithm was going to exclude people of color because we used a variable that was very much rooted in the cost of what people invest in healthcare versus the actual condition that people are dealing with, which we know people of color have a tendency to be very uh, medically vulnerable when it comes to you know chronic disease. I mean, when you think about it, Rayshawn and Tom, you know, how do you actually? You know, you start with the acknowledgement. That's important, but we're acknowledging you know a, a decades long history where these types of biases have been sort of embedded in our history, as well as in our practices and behaviors. So I think that one big thing that policymakers need to learn are what questions they should ask. So technology is advancing so fast that by the time that most policymakers end up putting up some sort of safeguards or passing legislation, particularly with the, with the current setup at the federal level, that oftentimes the tide has already passed. I mean, they've already done that. And of course, I mean, I know this space very well. 
running a virtual reality lab for law enforcement. I mean, by the time that legislation kept, catches up, I mean, we're already on like our third or fourth. I mean, we're like on the <laughs> on like the gamma version or the delta version at that at that point. And so I think it's a few things that need to happen on the corporate side and also on the legislative side. So on the corporate side, the first thing is diverse approaches oftentimes come from diverse people. And when we look at the racial makeup and the diversity of tech companies, I mean, it's abhorrent and it has to change. There are so many talented people out in the world who are not getting their shot to be able to contribute in this way. The next thing is methodologically. I mentioned randomized control trials earlier. We need statistical checks. The same sort of pathway and high bar that we have to go through to publish in academic journals or even publish something at Brookings is the same uh, pathway that tech tech companies need to go through before their product can be viable. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they shouldn't do pilots, but pilot programs must come along without prosecution, particularly in law enforcement, and that's not happening. One thing I know is that law enforcement will start using these new gadgets, these new programs, these new algorithms, and they will use them to actually do their jobs. We don't need that to happen. They need to be side by side in a randomized control trial with what they normally do to be able to figure out and assess what's going on the same way with how we make decisions about who gets parole, who gets bail. I mean, these are decisions that when they are constructed without centering race and racism and without centering in particular equity, it inherently oftentimes leads to bias because the people creating the algorithms are biased and the information they're using to inform the algorithm oftentimes is not comprehensive. So I think that we need to ensure that lawmakers have the sort of questions at play that they need to be asking. So one big question, one very important one, it's simple, is how will you, meaning the company or the department, guard against biases in your technology? And if they can't answer that question, that technology should not be deployed. So, I, boy, spot on, and I'm I'm loving this because I'm sitting here learning myself. You know, Nicole, I I I think that particularly when you look at AI, yes, what do you do? I I I, I boil it down to three bullets, and I, I said, and 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 the first is that we need to move from nerds to neighborhoods. Mm. And what's happening right now is that is that building algorithms is an isolated, self-centered activity for coders. And we've got to elevate into that process the communities that feel the effects of that coding. The second thing is we need to curb the enthusiasm that, <laughs> that, that I used to, years ago, I ran a software company. And, 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 and the way in which software is built, especially today, is to get it to what is called an MVP point, minimally viable product, and then release it. And and we will improve it as it, over time, as we see things happening in the marketplace. The problem is when you're dealing with AI in the kinds of important, again, sociological issues we're talking about here, as opposed to, AI that is a predictive texting, this is what you mean when you type in the first three letters of a word kind of a thing. Mm 
That's right. Um, That's right. When we're dealing with 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 the, 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 with AI that has an impact on people, we've got to recognize that that most product is not ready for prime time. That the MVP concept doesn't work in that environment, which is why you know IBM and Amazon and everybody else had to pull back on their facial recognition. And the third point is 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 we the people is that. We need to establish through us, which is our government, common expectations and standards that can deliver on what we're talking about here in the first two points. And the problem is that that is a word called regulation that everybody hates and that there is a cult organized against. And that, but, but it is us, we the people, establishing the expectations and the standards that we think a technology ought to deliver for the good of we the people. So we got to go through those three steps in order to address, in order to create the foundation to address the kind of things you're talking about. No, I think what you both have shared is is so eye-opening, right? Because what it's saying is we need the developers of these tools to be very mindful of what's going into the model, right? And what's not going into the model based on who's developing and who's not sitting at the table, right? When it comes to these things. But then I think what you're also saying as well is that we need to have a framework. Look at what we're going through now with COVID-19 and the fact that we're going to have volumes of data about people and their the impact of this disease on them. And we're going to have data that in some ways, and I think Rashawn, you've used this word in some of your writing that sort of geofences in certain populations because they showed up more with regards to the propensity to be infected. Tom, to your point, how do you empower those people, people that are black and brown, that are trying, you know, that will now receive uh, COVID-19, get well quick ads or products and services, you know, buy your own temperature reading, you know, that kind of stuff. But how do we empower people to actually get involved with this conversation and not accept these deceptive practices going forward? Well, I mean, I mean, I think there are two parts to that answer. The, The first part is we have to have an information effort. Hell, we don't have any information effort on COVID right now, other than right, a fight right. over do you wear your mask or not. That's you know, right. And, That's right. And, and, and the second is you have to have a regulatory structure that says, here are the expectations for marketplace behavior, and we're going to come down on you if you transgress. I know at least five to 10 people who have been infected by this disease, who are African-American. I mean, Rashawn, when you think about what we're talking about around this rush to the market and the availability of data, you know, how do you think about these things going forward, particularly in raising the awareness among African-Americans and other people of color about how this manipulation and exploitation can happen? You know, I think Shirley Chisholm said it best. She's one of my favorite politicians from her time. Um, in Washington. And one thing she said is that if you're not sitting at the table, you're on the menu and someone is eating you for lunch. And for too long, Black communities, Brown communities, other marginalized groups have been on the menu. 
They've been eating for lunch. So in this regard, what that means is that black bodies have been used, brown bodies have been used as guinea pigs. And we heard some people, not necessarily directly in the United States, but around the world, in France, for example, some of their top scientists and physicians said, oh, we'll, we'll just take the, the vaccine protocol to, to Africa. We could just test it on them the same way that we did prostitutes back in the day with HIV. I mean, this is the types of comments that are, that are made. And the problem is that these comments erode trust. And I think part of what we have to do is we have to empower communities. One thing Tom mentioned is really, really important that I see in this moment in kind of this broader movement for Black lives, dealing with these multiple pandemics, which of course tech and bias is all wrapped up in it, is teaching seem to be coming back. I think the other thing that has to happen with these tech companies is we need to start ensuring that they are having diverse approaches with diverse people. And part of what this means is working with minority and women-owned small businesses. So of course, when it comes to tech, it's not just about race, and a lack of racial representation. It's also about a lack of gendered representation. We need to ensure that the subcontracts that they're handing out, the banks that they work with, who they hire, who they promote, and their leadership looks like the communities that they're going to be deploying these technologies on. I'm actually worried about the implications of the speed of that technology because we haven't dealt with the biases at their, at their inception. Yeah, but I mean, let's talk about it. Let's shift now to both of you to what Tom talked about, which are not necessarily the dirty words of regulation and legislation. Are there public policies that we should be considering? Is there something that we should be doing or Congress should be doing to ensure that tech companies are more representative? You know, what do you believe should be done around education? But I'd, I'd love to hear some feedback so we can give people some solid policy recommendations to take back. You know, I think one thing that, that could happen is... Uh, really scaling up some sort of equity report card that tech companies have to provide. And, and again, I, I think one of the, the the clearest ways to do this actually is to ensure that the program works similarly across disparate groups. So that means that's getting back to thinking about the randomized control trials, thinking about the statistical checks. But I also think that city councils and state legislatures, which of course, I mean, we're going to have certain types of legislation that's passed at the federal level. I mean, Nicole, you know this better than, than most people because you've, you've been working on this for so long and been highly effective. At the local level, as people are thinking about this, I mean, we have a range from San Diego that wants to be this first smart city all the way up to San Francisco, where they're not necessarily allowing these certain types of technologies to come in. They're in the same state. So what's going to have to happen is not only is this going to be a local level issue, but at the state level, we're going to need legislators to step in and figure out what are the protocols that they want to implement. But I really think that at the federal level, this is an opportunity for our federal elected officials to act to ensure that we build upon some of the legislation that's in place. So for example, the Facial Recognition Technology Warrant Act, which uh, prevents the usage of facial recognition for over 72 hours. I think that's good. It has to have a judge's approval. It's limited oftentimes to 30 days. I mean, there are certain types of protocols and safeguards in place that I think is useful. Now, the, the guy in Detroit would say, well, that sure didn't help me when you all arrested me in the moment. And I think that's the point. This gets back to what needs to happen before the technology is deployed. What's really, really important is that it is not just 
enough or sufficient for the technology to operate as business as usual. It needs to be better and above reproach because business as usual means the profiling and racial profiling and then the use of force and violence and police killings, particularly in communities of color, that has led to the moment that we are in right now. Yeah, so I want to take this and I, I love what you're talking about. I want to pack it for our listeners because obviously, you know, this is such a big issue and the three of us are not going to solve this in the short period of time that we have. But let me unpack what you're talking about and then I'll shift it to Tom. I think what you're saying, uh, Rashawn, is like, hey, let's have a scorecard in terms of what diversity in tech looks like. And I'm actually proud to say that personally, I actually chair as part of the FCC's diversity committee, the subcommittee around diversity in tech, which Tom would tell you is not necessarily in the FCC's purview, but it has been fascinating to listen to black tech startups as well as other entities from civil rights organizations. I testified not too long ago with a gentleman who had left a tech company, basically wrote a medium blog about it and said he had to get out of there. And then he showed up in Congress, you know, talking to the House Energy and Commerce Committee about why he left. But a lot of that had to do with just the climate and the environment and the comfort that some of those people had while they were actually working with those companies. And I think the second thing that you're pointing out, which is the guardrails, right? What are the legislative guardrails that need to be put in place, particularly when you're dealing with sensitive use cases like criminal justice and policing algorithms, like credit and employment. I think that is so pertinent because I I honestly believe that oftentimes legislators are trying to address the determination side of this, these models. And those their blending of the determination side is with the real realities of their constituents who are being over-criminalized, right? Or over, you know, overly denied or rejected a mortgage or a loan. So I love what you're talking about in terms of imploring, you know, of applying these guardrails in places where it actually makes sense. So Tom, we'd love to hear your recommendations around that. uh, Nicole, I think there's several points here. First of all, I mean, Remember, California enacted a state statute that said we need to have women. We expect there to be women on corporate boards, on public company boards. Okay, And what happened? More women got on boards. Secondly, is I I love Rashad's idea of uh, an equity report card. I would I would go one step further and say that what we need to have is we need to have equity nutritional labeling. Right. Um, Because how does a purchaser understand what the realities of the product are? One of the things we did while I was at the FCC was to come up with a broadband nutritional label. We ought to be able to come up with some kind of a nutritional label on on equity. And then I also have to say that I was intrigued, if not heartened, to to pick up the New York Times this morning and see a story in the business section about, the the title was, Treating Diversity Like a Profit, with a Mm -hmm. P-R-O-F-I-T, not not biblical. Right. And, 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 you know, we provide bonuses to the executives of companies based on their profit performance. And this talked about companies, gave examples of companies throughout the country in which bonuses are tied to their recruiting and promoting people of color and women. 
and and the and the argument is that tying compensation to diversity is as important as tying it to profit and and that it ends up with a new kind of report card if you will a a publicly recorded for public companies a publicly recorded scorecard on the success of that company in achieving diversity goals and that just struck me as a very powerful idea. Yeah, and I mean, I want to share in just a moment some stuff that we're t- doing at Brookings, Tom, around that uh, nutritional label. But I want to go back to this idea of that New York Times article. I mean, it's 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 been no secret that African Americans are trillion dollar consumers in the marketplace. You know, the fact that African Americans have high purchasing value, particularly Black women in the marketplace. Rashawn, correct me if I'm wrong. What is the difference between investing in diversity and in de- investing in racial equity at this time? Or is there no difference? I think it's an amazing question. I mean, there are a few things I was thinking about as, as you and Tom were talking. The first big thing is it costs money to be bias-free. And part of what I've noticed in this moment is there are a lot of companies, I'm sure, reaching out to you, like always, but it's, you know, it's an increase. But it's the devaluing they place on this work. They either think we're going to do it for free or they think that, it's not a big deal, or they think they know what they're talking about. And so <laughs> what I spend a lot of my time doing uh, when I have these conversations, and I've tried not to not to have many of them, I have to do a reset with them. First, I have to say, look, you're not the expert. That's why you called me. Second, <laughs> um, like I'm like, you you don't know what you're talking about. Just, just be quiet because you're wrong. That's part of the problem when you're calling me. The second thing is it costs money to get this right. And it's not a one-off. So diversity... It's simply saying, oh, when I look around the room, do I see a woman? Do I see a person of color? Okay, I, I did that check. That's fine. Equity, on the other hand, is ensuring that everyone has the same ability to be upwardly mobile and has the same ability to contribute their voice as well as their skill set. Equity is saying, what can we do to ensure that we are having equitable hiring across race and gender? What can we do to ensure that we are having equitable promotion? What can we do to ensure that people across different marginalized groups have the same level of satisfaction where we can implement a satisfaction survey? Yeah, you know, I I completely agree with you on the diversity and equity side. I tell people diversity is having someone at the table. Equity is having that person be a a high, an active contributor to the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're not driving the agenda, you're not helping to reimagine or vision what's actually before you. You know, and I, I want to go back, Tom, to your net label because I'm so intrigued by that. I mean, and, uh, you know, and for people who don't know, let me just tell them, right? At Brookings, we're so uh, very much interested in looking at algorithmic bias, in particular AI overall. I haven't brought it up in this conversation, but I'll bring it up now. I think that we need companies to abide by the civil and human rights that have already been litigated and established. There should not be unlawful AI that actually hits the market where that's producing a disparate impact. And then finally, in the uh, model that we're developing, which is which is I'm tentatively calling it an energy star rating. So I love Tom the nutritional label because it's going in the right place, right? Which is you know what does civil society say about this? What do people who are actually affected by this? How do they contribute to that conversation to say, no, 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 that's not me. I think that that part of 
part of what we have to do, and this gets back to something I said at the beginning, we have to ensure that the questions that we are arming elected officials with to ask is important and that these are questions that they can ask and that the people who have the technologies, the corporations, for me, is thinking about all the things that law enforcement get, all the special things they get to use, that policymakers know the questions to ask. And if they don't get an answer that sounds like people have thought through that, well, then people need to go back to the to the drawing board. And that's one thing I'll say about Amazon. I mean, they, they, they were like, you know, this is something we need to work on more. And I know a lot of people say, well, given Amazon's portfolio, they have the ability to do that, right, financially, to go back into the vault and figure it out. Other companies don't. And I think that's one key thing that we haven't exactly talked about. Like with tech companies, particularly that are startup, that get a pot of money. I mean, that money runs out at some point if they don't go to scale, if they don't go to market in some sort of ways. And so oftentimes they know that they are putting out a product, an inferior product with bugs, hoping they can work it out. I mean, and honestly, this is just what technology has always done. I mean, let's take even something that's on my mind simply because of where I happen to be doing this podcast at is kids' video games. I mean, nowadays they're releasing games that have so many bugs. They're wanting people to be test users. We also know that algorithms matter a lot. Nicole, you mentioned earlier about our purchasing habits. I mean, our phones listen to us. <laughs> you know, you say something and then you go on social media and it pops up. And these are the sort of ways, I mean, everything, like we were talking about a pool or a trampoline in the backyard is popping up when I pull up my social media. Like these are the kind of things that are happening, but this is what I find so, so interesting. And this is why policymakers have to do the right thing and not just, and not simply wait on the public. That even though when you ask people, are they skeptical about, technology. People say yes, but this is the interesting thing. About 75% of people believe that facial recognition accurately identifies people. So people don't even know that facial recognition is off. And over 50% of people actually trust police's use of facial recognition. Now, I might imagine that in this moment, maybe that's decreased after what people are seeing. But overall, it's a large percentage of Americans who think that technology is the wave of the future, that it is something inherent about technology that is objective. And we have to disrupt that. Like technology is only as good as the information that is put into the algorithms. And the problem for too long, whether that be a healthcare app telling us whether or not people should be able to get some sort of surgery or get access to some sort of special, special healthcare, that these sort of things are imbued with bias that we have to disrupt. You know, I, I I love this whole concept of disrupting the disrupted, <laughs> you know, in many respects. And I think what you both are saying is that we have to get to a point where policymakers at least earn the path towards coming up with the right legislative guardrails or to companies come up with the right best practices. But at the end of the day, and I, I'm going to kind of take it here because I, I want you both to know that I highly respect, you know, not both of you, not as just professionals, but as friends. I've known both of you for quite some time. When it comes down to it, you change racial systems because you care. You know, and I, I know, I know, Tom, for a fact, you probably looked at my email kind of funny when I was like, I want you on this conversation on racial bias. Because, <laughs> you know, because you've seen it all. And your, your grasping of history, I think, is such a compliment to the discussion of combining race and tech. But when did you start caring about these issues, Tom, as an individual, you know, growing up? 
in the society that, you know, has had its challenges? Well, I mean, I think there's a, there's two there's two parts to the question. When did you start caring? And I can specifically yes. identify when I started caring. I was in Brazil in 1963 on a, as a high school student on a people-to-people program. And on the front page of the local newspaper was Bull Connor's dogs attacking some black demonstrators. And, and that was my wake-up call. Now, yes. the reality is that, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this has been a journey. And I think it's a journey for all of us as we recognize what are the what are the ever evolving realities and challenges. And you know, to go to the something we were just talking about a second ago about about our policymakers. Boy, do I have respect for the 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 men and women who are um, uh, trying to do the right thing, they are handicapped by the fact that in this ever-changing environment, human nature is you define today and tomorrow in terms of what you understood yesterday. And if this discussion we've had for the last hour tells us anything, it is it goes back to the the point that that Rashawn made that that technological change is fast and bias change is slow <laughs> and, and 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 how do we how do we help the dialogue and the understanding of the issue to keep people coming down this Damascus road yes and Rashawn when did you start caring and I mean, I think that's a hard question for me to ask you because I know when you started caring, probably out of your mama's womb. But when did you start caring? Yeah, literally. I mean, it's it's funny. I, I wrote down my mama. I mean, you know, for for me, it was it was one pivotal moment. I mean, there, my my mother, you know, as as you all probably know, I mean, she raised me as a single mother. She is a phenomenal person, and just watching her navigate what we call intersectionality, the intersectional ways that her race, her gender her social class manifested in her life. But the biggest one I would say, when I was around 10 years old growing up in Atlanta, um, I was going to a baseball game. So I was in the passenger side. My mom was driving and traffic was backed up on this road we take. And so people were standing in the street, kind of didn't know what they were doing. I kind of looked, seen someone with a bucket. I was like, okay, firefighters must be taking up money. But as I got closer, I started seeing something white on someone's head. And in short, it was the KKK collecting money for their organization. And I heard my mom say, oh, shoot. And so, you know, I'm trying to process this. I'm looking. And, um, you know, I heard of the KKK, really never seen them, never really thought about it. The We get up, we get up there. My mom cracks the window a little bit because they were stopping everybody. And he said, hey, you, you want to donate to the Klan today? And my mom said, no, I don't think I want to do that. And he said, um, well, you interested in joining the clan? Cause we need good N-word women like you. Mm. And I'll never forget that moment. And so, and I think in this moment, I think about Tom's story, and I think about how in this moment right now, that George Floyd, to a lot of people today, is the Emmett Till moment of the 21st century. And people are paying attention to a lot of these different things in terms of 
what's going on. And so for me, I think it's fundamental that racial equity needs to be normalized rather than an add-on. What I hear from a lot of corporations and organizations, tech companies, police departments, oh, okay, this is like a special, you know, it's like an elective course that we do. No, it needs to be a main course. It needs to be normalized. And only when equity is normalized, racial equity, gender re- equity, only then will we fundamentally start to deal with bias. I agree with both of you as we begin to wrap up this conversation that these moments, I think as Tom so nicely put it, define our journeys of the future, right? And they define the extent to which we take on these hard conversations and try to make the worlds in which we all live much better, whether at Brookings or in our personal life. For those who have been listening, you're listening to the new podcast led by the Tech Tank team here at Brookings. My name is Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee. This discussion has touched upon a lot of areas today, a whole lot to unpack, but I think it's important to just keep reiterating that who sits at the table matters in terms of the design and the execution of these new models, particularly in emerging AI, how that representation or that diversity of people that sit at that table matter, but their participation, the equity part of the equation matters even more. And I think the last thing that you probably heard as we've had this conversation, that we need to think of new models, new pathways, new guardrails, protecting those who have been historically marginalized or denied admittance, or have seen some of these cruel realities, whether broadcast through television or personally you know, seen through their own young eyes, that we have to do better as well. Tom and Rashawn, where can people find you? Tom, how about you? What you got going on? You got another book coming out, but where can people find you? Brookings. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Anything new in the pot that's that's brewing that we need to tell people about you? I know you continue to write those books. I'm on my first one and it's traumatic. (laughs) I'm I'm waiting for the muse to come visit me again. But she only stops by every once in a while, which is what you'll find out, Nicole. I know, right? And Rayshawn, what about you? Where can people find you? What you're working on? I mean, you know, I'm on I'm on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at sociologist Ray. What am I working on? I, I need to really be working on uh this 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 police reform book. And so if I can find some time to do that, but you know, just trying to continue to help people make sense of of this moment uh that we're in. And, you know, we're in a unique policy window. Like the match has been lit. And before the match goes out, there needs to be a certain amount of movement toward equity. And I think we're all trying to do our part for that. Thank you. And you can find me at Brookings as well, which is why this is a Brookings podcast. (laughs) But uh, the same thing, you find me in all the social media properties, as well as continue to look for my book that should be out through Brookings Press next year. It's on the U.S. Digital Divide titled Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. And for all of you who have been interested in the conversations that we're having on artificial intelligence, I encourage you to visit uh, the Brookings website, click on AI, and you'll see a series of papers uh, focused on governance as well as bias and even national security. Big thank yous to these two. Thank you so much, Tom and Rayshawn. I really appreciate your participation today. So thank you. And for all of you who have uh, chimed in, continue to listen to uh, the next podcast. We want to be the podcast that is in the know 
on contemporary tech issues, but particularly we want to be provocative and getting you to think beyond the bits and the bites. Thank you again. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.